together and uh, we'll dive into this passage okay lord we need your help there's much to understand in a short period of time today we always need your help in understanding uh, god's word regardless of the depth or the breadth of the portion addressed Uh, but today lord especially as we take a deeper dive in understanding the fullness of jesus's statement in this passage that he is one with you i and the father are one lord help us to understand not just what that means doctrinally but just practically for us as a flock and as we do may we leave this place uh, even happier and more joyful than when we first came so lord may everything that you see and you hear of our worship this morning be acceptable in your sight as our strength and redeemer and our lord in jesus name we pray amen so for those of you who are newer to the lord and praise god we've got six new babies in the lord uh, here this morning from the last couple of weeks uh, and for those of you who may be guests today uh, we want to um, uh, let you know that this is going to be a little bit deeper dive into some aspects of scripture and an understanding of God and um, any term that we may use that's maybe a little bit sounds a little bit bigger and longer uh, we seek to simply explain so that all can hear uh, with understanding uh, today and um, so we'll we'll dive in here and, and continue to do the the right thing the right way so as we wrap up this chapter today and we focus on the remaining attributes of God that we began studying last week these attributes of God in Christ that are clearly manifested in it I want you to do something with me this morning I want you to think about those in this segment of scripture that are not mentioned the disciples of Jesus his 12 followers are not listed here as a group or by name and yet they're onlookers and they're listeners to this debate between Jesus and the religious people who don't know Jesus yet and as we re-enter the scene of the temple square specifically Solomon's porch or your translation might say portico where open theological debates often occurred during festival times the disciples would have been near their rabbi Jesus this was customary those who followed their rabbi followed him throughout the day and they often learned as he taught others not just exclusively as he would teach them So rabbi being teacher, they're learning as he both actively and passively trains them in ministry life, if you will. These disciples are younger in the Lord. From what we understand, at least they're all three years old in Christ or less. So they're they're still somewhat baby Christians, if you will. I'm certain their ears heard things that shook them and unsettled them. My goodness, the most glamorous of Jesus' disciple, Peter himself, some 30 years after this scene, was unsettled and influenced by religious unbelief again. And even the apostle Paul needed to confront him and to settle him. And you know that story if you know the Bible well from Galatians chapter 2. But for today, for today, I just want you to know that it's, that it's normal for the followers of Jesus at times to become unsettled by what they're confronted with during the course of their weeks. You possibly may be struggling in your walk with him. Possibly to the point where your former religious life has crept in unawares to your thinking and it's beginning to paralyze your walk with Christ that you have enjoyed. Possibly your confidence in your risen Savior 
has waned under the, the duress and the distractive nature of circumstances in our world, let alone your world personally. So, please continue to listen to this portion of our worship. Understanding that, that Jesus, while he's directly addressing unbelief, is very mindful of those who believe on him, who are in the peanut gallery listening to him. When you study this text, even though Jesus is directly addressing those who don't believe in him yet, in the religious sect of Israel, you will hear him, and I trust you'll hear him, really directly addressing more those who believe on him to strengthen their faith as he directly addresses those who have no faith in Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning is that the sheep privately struggling to walk would be unburdened by the public statements of their Savior as he carefully speaks and articulates the very nature of who he is and what he's come to do. The setting, as you know, is the Feast of Dedication. This feast would be known today as the week of Hanukkah. This time is celebrated commencing on December 25th, Christmas on our calendar, Hanukkah for the Jews. As we were reminded last week, the Syrian tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 BC marches into Jerusalem, desolates the Jewish temple by an improper sacrifice overturns all things that the Jews knew to be good in the formal worship of the Mosaic community. So for three years, the Jews begin to rally a rebellion against what Antiochus Epiphanes in history has done. And in 167 BC, there's a revolt. And the temple is taken back. Proper Mosaic Jehovah worship is restored. And on this particular feast of dedication morning, Jesus is walking in Solomon's porch. It's warmer there. We're some 90 days from the colder elements. We're some 90 days from the beginning of Jesus' Passion Week when he would enter the city of Jerusalem for the final time underneath the cool breeze of folks waving palm branches over him claiming him to be Hosanna, the king of the Jews. And here we find the religious leaders picking up and continuing their, their assault against Jesus' life and person and ministry. And I believe this whole passage is properly understood when we realize this is Jesus' last public attempt. This is the end of his public ministry to persuade cold, unbelieving hearts to simply believe on him as the Son of God while he's also actively ministering to those who are unsettled and struggling possibly, who know him as they watch their Savior be publicly assaulted verbally and potentially physically once again. Remember the theme of the whole book of John? Jesus did all of his words and works so that people would what? Believe that he is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. You'll see in this text, and we'll highlight it later, both in verse 26 and in verse 37, the word believe highlighted a handful of times again. Jesus is standing face to face with religious, stiff-necked, cold-hearted unbelief. They know a lot about God, but they don't know much at all about Jesus as the Son of God. They refuse to believe him as the Son of God. And really, the language of our Christianity has never been a language of of accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior or um, 
place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. That's not the language of Jesus or John in the giving of this gospel. There's actually a command to believe. You must believe in him as the Son of God. Turn from your sin. Place your faith in him. We learned last week that the Lord Jesus' heart and love for these unbelieving religious leaders to believe in chapter 10 uh, is really is an act of his mercy, an act of his mercy. And with this merciful determination, Jesus pursues the hearts of the most stubborn unbelieving people in his final invitation while also seeking to settle, as we've already said, and grow his true followers. And that was the... And that was the virtue and attribute we asked each of us to see in the life of Jesus last week. He is merciful in his approach to seeing people come to know him as their Lord and Savior. And we implored myself and each of you as you, as you spend your life, literally, weeks, months, years, in prayers and efforts to see your dear friends come to know Jesus where they can know the special joy and peace and forgiveness that's only found in him as you've enjoyed. Uh, continue to arm yourself with the same merciful, long-suffering compassion that Jesus demonstrates for us very clearly in this passage. So the whole foundation of the passage is really in Jesus' words that he proclaimed in verse 30. I think it's very interesting that Jesus announces and says something he's never said before about himself. This was the most clear and concise self-proclamation of his deity, that Jesus is God in a human body, that he's ever said in public ministry. And in so doing, Jesus exclusively draws the attention of unbelieving hearts to the Godhead. He's boldly proclaimed in this passage that his words and works should have been enough for them to know who he was and to believe. And yet, though both were charitably enough, the religious ones remained in unbelief. So Jesus, in his final public speech to unbelief, announces, I and my Father are one. We're one. And the religious unbelief now stands before God as Savior and coming judge, and the defense of their unbelieving stance will be required of them in the courtroom of heaven someday. So as we continue to analyze the passage with full focus on the deity of Christ, we examine this text, this next attribute found in verses 25 to 29. Mercy last week. Therefore, we move forward and understand the omnipotence of God in Christ Jesus. The omnipotence of God. For those of you that are newer to the Lord or maybe not come to know Jesus personally yet, omnipotence just means all-powerful. All-powerful. This attribute of God is more fully understood when we examine the saving work of God in Christ Jesus. God is all-powerful. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. I'm going to read to you a number of different theologians that have, that have referenced definitions of what it means for God to be all-powerful. One has said that God does all that is consistent with his nature and his purpose. Power is the ability to produce effects. Matthew said Jesus could have made children of Abraham from stones, but he will not. He also says in chapter 26 that he could have called 12 legions of angels to the Garden of Eden to overthrow what Satan was seeking to do, but he didn't. You see, because omnipotence is being able to do all that one wills. God did not will those two things to happen, so therefore they did not happen. God is omnipotently capable to perform that which he wants to and has eternally decreed and willed to happen. Amen. 
to be unable to do what one does not will is not weakness. It is the will of God that not all should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We know that. Come to saving faith in Jesus, to know his forgiveness, his peace, his love, his spiritual fulfillment. So God does will souls to be saved, and what he wills, he fully and powerfully accomplishes. Omnipotently, should I say, accomplishes. God is almighty, we know that. Moses proclaimed that in Genesis 17:1. He also writes that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Job proclaimed, you all know from our series in Job in 42, verse 2, I know that you, O God, can do all things. We learned in kindergarten Sunday school, some of us, Jeremiah 32, 17, and we learned that verse with motions. Ah, Lord God, with thy great power and stretched out arm, you finish it with me. There is nothing too hard for thee, right? Isaiah said the everlasting God does not become weary or tired. John wrote in Revelation 19, 6, that the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. We know that God decreed to create, therefore he is all-powerful in what he's created. Jeremiah tells us that in chapter 10 and verse 2. It is he who made the heaven and earth by his power. Nature enjoys the omnipotent influence of God, as Job said in 26, verses 7 to 14, that God wraps the waters in the clouds. And we all saw the, the absolute power of that this last week, if you were within the range of that storm. God is all-powerful in history. Daniel says in chapter 4 and verse 17, the most high rules over the kingdoms of mankind. And in the same chapter in verse 35, God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of all the earth. And Job told us in chapter 1 and verse 12 that, that God is even all-powerful over that which he allows Satan to do in this world. But we know from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 18 to 22 and other texts that God is powerful to save. God is powerful in his redeeming of his people. God omnipotently wills the salvation of men from eternity past. This is what Paul calls the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. Someone has said redemption and all of its related aspects, including the resurrection of Christ, is undoubtedly the greatest exercise of his power. When God saves, he doesn't demand perfection as the omnipotent one. Only an omnipotent God can demand and bring about perfection. When God's omnipotent strength is our unfailing source of strength as his people. We know that what's impossible with man, the salvation of a soul, according to Matthew 19, verses 25 and 26, is possible with God. What is impossible with man is only possible for omnipotent, all-powerful God to do, and that's to transform a human soul. And in relationship to the good shepherd saving work in the text before us in verses 26 to 25, 29 that we read last week, we find a familiar and incredibly encouraging words regarding God and his son's divine ability to save and to keep. Read with me here. Beginning in verse 26, as he addresses the unbelief, he says, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And what does he say in verse 27? My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand either. 
I give unto them eternal life. There are those in the passage before us that are not God's sheep, and to them there is their end is eternal judgment without God because they've rejected Jesus. But to those who are God's sheep, the omnipotent divine work of Christ has given them eternal life. Now we know what abundant life in John 10, 10 is. Remember the good shepherd who came to give life and to give it more abundantly? This is what it is. It's eternal life. This is the life the good shepherd brings. Then Jesus states, they will never perish. The double negative is used here in the Greek language as if God's eternal preserving promise was not enough. Jesus in his kindness proclaims that his sheep abide under the all-powerful preserving protection of God himself as the Son of God. Another omnipotent promise is proclaimed by Jesus and no one now shall snatch them out of my hand. And as Jesus expands his explanation of his sheep's eternal preservation on his way to proclaiming that he and his father are one, he boldly declares, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus' promise of eternal protection was omnipotently enough because he's God but there's also been a gifting of you by God to Jesus that is even more divine evidence that all God's sheep are eternally secure in Christ. Our God of creation, our God Almighty, our God with whom there is no nothing too difficult to accomplish within his decrees and the scope of his will and who can do all things has given, has gifted you and me to the Son and has preserved our souls for all time and eternity in Christ Jesus by his omnipotent hand. Hendrickson says in his commentary, true believers are never lost to the Father or to the Son. They are the objects of God's omnipotent and special care. There's an old hymn that's rarely sung today. I sing the gracious fixed decree passed by the great eternal three, the council held in heaven above, the Lord's predestinating love. Therefore, and in this all-powerful preservation of your souls comes the omniscience of God as displayed and put on display in the person of Jesus Christ. From his mercy to his omnipotence to his omniscience. Jesus knows all things. That's what omniscient means for you younger believers. Omnipotent, all-powerful. Omniscience, all-knowing. Jesus knows all things for he is God. Though he may lay aside the independent use of his attributes as he was fully man also, with the Father's permission, he would remain divinely and fully aware of the condition of the hearts and souls of those who followed them and those who un remained in unbelief and contended with him. He knew the paralyzing effect of unbelief on the hearts of his own who were listening. Those who followed Jesus had believed on him in part because God's grace compelled them to see who Jesus was from his words and works that he taught and did and preached, but others had seen the same and heard the same and rejected. We referenced it earlier, but two times in this passage, verse 25 and verses 37 and 38, Jesus references his works that were done to evidence his divinity and unbelief can't see it. And in their blindness, they have a negative influence on those who have seen and genuinely believe. Unbelief was seeking to, as one author said, paralyze the effect which the works of Jesus might have on people who did believe. Jesus says in the passage, these works were done to testify of who I am. They were meant to stand as a very clear message of who he is and why he's come. Yet as they deny their influence and attack the person of Jesus and seek to influence the confidence of 
followers of Jesus have in him, we come to the words that settle our hearts. My sheep hear my voice and I what? What does it say? I know them, right? And my friends, that's an omniscient no. We'll seek to unpack this as we go on. God's omnipotent hand, his all-powerful hand, is not short that it cannot save. And when he saves, he keeps and in Christ continues to fully know you. Dysphoria is a word that's used a lot in our culture. There's a lot of dysphoria going on in a lot of places over a lot of things. Dysphoria is simply defined as a state of feeling unhappy, uneasy, or dissatisfied, which leads often to depression, suicidal thoughts, other doubts of self and self-nature and self-purpose. And dysphoria leads every, leaves everybody in its wake wondering, who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing? And where am I supposed to go? When you come to know Jesus, spiritual, psychological, social, practical dysphoria runs away. And as he fully knows us, we become to fully know him. Someone has said of God's omniscience, his knowledge includes all things past, present, and future, immediately, simultaneously, and eternally, whether actual or possible when it comes to your life. God has never been on a learning curve or a learning process on his way to a state of omniscience. A Christian apologist said this, God's knowledge is not derived from its objects, but it is exercised without receptivity or dependence on anything or anyone. God draws his knowledge directly from the basis of reality as it lies within himself. God has his knowledge of the whole universe within himself. Therefore, God omnisciently knew the fullness of your sinful heart before you were saved, and when he regenerates your heart and forgives you and saves you, he equally and fully knows you as his child. God knows by way of his omnipotent hand that you are eternally secure and preserved in Christ, now omnisciently knows you in a very personal way in his son Jesus. And as the father knows his son, listen, kids, High school kids, junior high, elementary. Listen, this, this, was, this was something that may have been preached when I was a kid, but I never got it. I never got it. What God does in his saving work, he cannot undo because he is not a liar. When God saves you, he can never unsave you because he did it and he's immutable. He's unchanging in his decision. This is an eternal decree, my friends. I lived much of my life until my sophomore year of college as a seminary student, wondering if I was really saved because I didn't understand that this, this, this uh, attribute of God as demonstrated and, and, and uh, enacted, if you will, upon us the moment we believe. So this, this next statement of clarification I hope is super helpful As the father knows his son, he now fully knows you. When he says, I and my father are one, there's some familiarity there from a divine eternal perspective. They're fully aware of each other. And now as God knows the son, the moment you're born again and you're omnipotently saved and preserved in him, he fully knows you as he enjoys knowledge of his son. The fullness of God's all-knowing ability to be familiar with his own son is now the same fullness in which he knows you. God fully knows you as his child in salvation and he 
fully knows the ability he granted you to follow his will. My sheep will hear. My sheep will follow. I fully know my sheep and I fully know the saving work done in them. Therefore, I know their response to the good shepherd. Another apologist has said very clearly, people cannot make themselves sheep. Sheep do not hear a voice unless that voice has gone forth first of all. And sheep do not follow unless the shepherd has first pushed them out of the fold and has gone on ahead of them to give them someone to follow. It is the good shepherd who gives to the sheep everlasting life and they will never perish. Therefore, the sheep listen and they follow. They actively want to know the good shepherd because they are fully known of him. And how blessed of a reality is this after we're fully known in salvation and we still spiritually struggle, right? Remember, Jesus is speaking to the unbelief, but he has full awareness of the struggling, young, believing followers that he has as they listen to this onslaught and they watch these leaders pick up stones. The temple, ever since it was destroyed and being rebuilt, always had excess stones laying around. So these unbelievers pick up stones, you saw in verse 31 and 32, to kill Jesus. That's going to be unsettling for a new believer, wouldn't you think? I mean, I'm, none of us are Jesus. We're called under shepherds as pastors. I mean, if someone walked in here right? And you've just been saved for a couple, two, three weeks, maybe two, three years, and someone walked up to the platform and pointed a gun at Pastor Tim or Pastor anybody, you might wonder, is this really worth hanging out for? Right? I mean, the disciples are just men. But think about Jesus's words in relationship to settling these, these unsettled hearts, right? And even though our hearts are unsettled, John writes later, very much in a close proximity to what he wrote the gospel of John in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20. If your heart unsettles you or condemns you, God is greater than our hearts and knows everything. He knows all things. And what he knows is true about you is that he has omnipotently saved you, committed to omnipotently preserve you, and he has given you grace enough that we learn along the way to follow the good shepherd. And you will hear, and you will follow. That's just the way God's grace operates. It doesn't mean that you're going to be without struggle. But at the end of the day, God's grace produces the perseverance of his sheep. So for those of you that have people in your life that say, I once knew and I once followed, but never again because of this circumstance or because of what this person did to me or because of what this person said to me who called themselves a Christian. I once was a Christian and living the Christian life, but then I realized there's hypocrites everywhere within Christianity. So I turned away never to follow again. And they, and they use that as justification for their virtuous life. And my friends, the disciples in this context had every reason to walk away, even the threatening of their own lives, because after they're done stoning Jesus, who do you think they're going to wind up to hit next? Saving faith perseveres because of the omnipotent hand of God and the omniscient understanding of that soul. That's just how the grace of God operates. It won't be without struggle. It won't be without doubt. It will not be done perfectly. But at the end of the day, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them because they follow me. Remember what Matthew said about the omniscience of God. There's not even a sparrow that's going to fall to the ground in death without his notice. Not even a, the tiniest of birds. How much more does he notice his child? You. He knows all things. 
Remember Psalm 33, verses 13 to 15, the Lord looks down from the embattlements of heaven and he sees all of mankind. And Luke tells us in chapter 1 and verse 24, the Lord knows all the hearts of men. And David reminds us in Psalm 139 that he knows when you sit down, he knows when you stand up, he knows when you lie down, he knows all of your thoughts, he knows the aspects of our daily paths. And there's nowhere we can go to escape his knowing, or his understanding. Matthew 10.30 tells us he even knows, for those of us who have hair, how many hairs are on our head. And he even knows, for those of you that don't anymore, how many you would have had, (laughs) or did have at one point. God knows your beginning and end. In the beginning and end of all things, he says in Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, I am God declaring the end from the beginning. There is no unexplored possibilities in the universe that he's recreated. Roland McCune says in his systematic theology, he even knows all that could be. Therefore, there's nothing about you that God needs to explore as one of his children. And he knows what even could be about you. So when you're discouraged and not feeling saved, assured, or so empowered to walk with God, remember God is immutable. He's unchanging in his ability to maintenance that omnipotent saving of your soul. He's all-powerful to cause you to persevere. And he knows everything about you. Therefore, you never need to fear to go to him to proclaim the weaknesses you're experiencing and the fear you're living and the anxiety that's paralyzing you. He already knows everything about you. He's longing for you to be transparent with him about each and everything. He knows. And though he knows your weakness... What he first knows is that you are his child. There is no weakness that you endure or that paralyzes you that can even remotely potentially bring you to the line of being unsaved. So when Peter says in 1 Peter 5, cast your care upon him because he cares for you, remember that's an omniscient caring. Someone asked me the other day by way of text, when I come to wit's end and there's really no place to go, and I'm scared, I'm fearful, I'm angry. And he said, Pastor, what do you do in those moments? I said, I leave the house, doesn't matter what time of day or night, and I go on long walks and I wrestle with God. I just tell him back in my own soul what he already knows to be true about my soul. And my friends, there's something incredibly therapeutic about that. I said, sometimes I'll even wrestle with God in prayer while I enjoy some intense exercise because I need to physically be tired out so my old flesh stops wrestling with God and learns to trust with God, trust in God. That's what I do. Just go. Just go. Don't fear. He already knows. Go because he knows. And enjoy the relief that he's able to bring because you went. Understanding he knows. So therefore, understanding his omniscience in Christ Jesus, we need to understand God is all wise in Christ Jesus. God is all wise. Now I promise you the final two points here are shorter than the first two. Uh, and I promise you that uh, we, we shortened preliminaries so that we could still get you out at a decent and orderly time. God is all wise. Maybe you didn't know that this is actually an attribute of God. You say, I would think that all wise would be included in his all knowing. Right? It is a distinct attribute in Scripture. God is all wise. And we've already said we all know. And have been unsettled sheep, just needling, settling wisdom in our lives from time to time. And 
All of us who have been in the Lord for any length of time have become weakened in our walk. And when we have the opportunity to sit with someone older and wiser in the faith to talk things out, we're settled and revived, so to speak. In our walk again, we go to God and then we can have the luxury of going to other people who walk with God, who have climbed mountains we've yet to climb, such as the tightest two people in our lives and maybe even our disciples for sure. And as we are settled within natural realms within the church, we're most settled by knowing God is all wise. We're going to see that in this passage. What does it mean to be all wise? One theologian said, this is where God applies his knowledge. Hang on with me here, right? Remember what wisdom is in the Bible. It's just the Bible with hands and feet. God applies his knowledge in such a way that the best means are employed to achieve the highest ends in order to glorify him the most in our lives. God is in absolute and perfect control of his knowledge. Wisdom is more than just intelligence because it includes the ability to control and direct the mind. Paul says in Romans 11:33, "Oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In chapter 16 and verse 27, Paul declares God to be the only wise God. That great psalm on creation in Psalm 104, Paul declares God to be the only wise God and the God's wisdom is seen in all of his works. The psalmist says, we know Romans 8, 28, he causes all things, he causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his name. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 in relationship to redemption, the will of God is made manifest through the church, through your redemption, through the change of your own life. So Jesus says something to the unbelief here, and this is going to really, uh, really uh, demand that you hopefully had some protein for breakfast this morning um, and not a lot of carbs. We turn the air conditioning up to keep it cool, right? But verse 34 to 36 is deep, and we're going to try to simply and quickly explain it. How is Jesus' all-wise reality of him being God put on display here? He takes the word of God, and he applies it to the practical situation for the best outcome. It's a very, very, very peculiar text that needs particular attention here. Remember what Jesus said in verse 32, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because he had called himself God, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them this, has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? Cross-reference here, Psalm 82 in your Bibles. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified, speaking of himself, Jesus is speaking here, and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. What's going on here? Why does Jesus reference a courtroom scene, if you will, in Psalm 82, where Jewish leaders are called gods? The Hebrew word in Psalm 82 is literally Elohim, which is a Hebrew word we typically, from Genesis chapter 1, creation week forward, understand to be God alone. Well, Jesus knows the word, and therefore he knows wisdom, which is the application of the word. He highlights a text from the Psalms that refers to men as gods for this reason. In Psalm 82, the word for gods is Elohim, but it's a significant reason why he calls them little gods in that context. This is why it's so important for those of you that go through GLBI and deeper understanding of God's word and take class in hermeneutics, Right? Hermeneutics, big word. That's just really the science of how to study the Bible. Don't worry about the big word. 
but there is a linguistic aspect, a cultural aspect, a historic aspect to rightly understanding and the dividing of the word of truth. So this is why Jesus dives in here. The Bible says that God is above all gods, right? God Elohim, the God of heaven, is a God above all small, finite Elohims. And there are places in the Bible where men and other entities are called gods. Context determines meaning. Elohim is also used in some Old Testament passage and it's interpreted as judges or rulers. God has, the God above all gods has set up finite rulers of man to enact law over man. And this is how he's addressing these religious leaders. And we know that because of the qualification that Jesus uses here. The word of God had come to them, verse 35, and the scriptures cannot be broken. Remember, they're debating in Solomon's portico. Debate often happened there, theological debate in nature. This is where intellectual theological debates would often take place in Israel's feast. So Jesus is just challenging the unbelievers, understanding the scriptures. As Jewish leaders, as Jews, they were given the word of God to know, to discern, to apply, and to lead in living it. They were called gods or judges of the word. They're to know the word well enough to be able to discern what God has said about the coming of his son, Jesus. They're to be able to recognize him at his coming, submit to his lordship personally at the hearing of his word and the do seeing of the doing of his works. Remember in John 3, Jesus actually rebukes Nicodemus for not knowing the word who he was and what it meant to be born again. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a ruler. He had been given the word. He was to preach, teach, and explain the word and live the word as a ruler in Israel over people, as an Elohim over people. And he wasn't, so Jesus rebukes him. That later led to Nicodemus coming to know Jesus as his savior. So in an all-wise way, Jesus states clearly to these men that they had no problem being referred to as gods, judges, and discerners of the word. So why in the world, knowing the Bible like they do, would they call Jesus a blasphemer for referring him to himself as God in the flesh? As discerners, judges, little gods given oversight of the interpretation of the Old Testament law, they should have known him as they've seen him and as they've heard him. Again, how merciful is Jesus to these souls who certainly should have known better? And by the way, how settling is Jesus' rebuke to these unbelievers, to his disciples? How reaffirming, how encouraging, how much confidence. I mean, here's Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, the chief debater, and, and all of his disciples, nowhere near ready to debate in Solomon's portico. They're pushing Jesus out to the debate front. Now you do this, <laughs> not us, right? Right? And so Jesus is pulling up this Old Testament text, and they're saying, yeah, absolutely. Take that. <laughs> That's who Jesus is. He's God. He's not blaspheming. What did the Old Testament religious leader know was the penalty for blasphemy? Death by stoning. Leviticus tells us. My dear friends at GCM, God's sheep hear his voice and they follow his word. As we are fully known of God in Christ, we are set as God's judges, discerners of the word of God. And this word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. That's why we're taught in a pastoral epistle in 2 Timothy 2 to rightly divide the word of truth. 
An all-wise God has given us his wisdom in human flesh, Jesus. He's inspired and preserved for us wisdom in his word that we are to study, know, and live personally, then collectively as a family. And as if we didn't need more assurance and more confidence and more promise than in the omnipotent, merciful, omnipotent, omniscient reality of God in this text, he says, you know what? I've given you my word too. If you're struggling in your faith as even the early saved Messianic Jews were doing in the church of Jerusalem under the shepherding of James, do what James admonishes them to do. Where he says in James 1.25, but one who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the Bible, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in his deed. You are set up as little Elohims, judges, discerners of the word given to you in the dispensation of time. So I'll ask you some questions. Are you in the word? Do you meditate on the word? Do you beg your all-wise God for wisdom regarding how to live the word? Are you faithful in the hearing of the word? In the 9 a.m. hour, parents, do you have your children under the hearing of the word? If you can get them up for school at 6 a.m. and get them out the door by 7.30 a.m. to arrive in class by 8 or 8.30 a.m., certainly they can learn of God by 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. And they desperately need it. You are Elohims. You are judges. You are discerners. You are leaders in making sure the souls in your home are completely familiar with the whole entirety of the Word of God. Do you come expectantly to hear the Word in our teaching times, our morning worship hour? Are you fellowshipping around the word in your evening groups? Are you discipling one another in the word? Are you being discipled by someone in the word? Are you seeking to live the word with those in your home? Are you seeking the wisdom of others within our flock regarding the living of the word in your own life? And the practice of the church, there's lots of layers there of word saturation, I understand, but God's wisdom is found within those layers. Your spiritual protection and growth is bolstered within and by these layers of word saturation. But we have one last attribute to explore as we close this text. And this attribute is really the blue dot on the horizon, if you will, that all of us seek to pursue as we live in Christ's likeness now. Finally, we see the, the grace of God in Christ. We certainly have referenced that already, and we, we see grace saturating God's saving ability of our souls and preserving ability of our souls. But what are some practical applications of where we see grace evidenced in our lives as we move forward? We find it in the closing verses when Jesus leaves the portico, leaves the debate, and he, and he retreats back to where it all began. And there he ministers for 90 days in private for those who would come to him until the week of his passion where he was crucified. John explains that the act of grace of God performs here during these few sunset days of Jesus' public ministry a couple things. It says here in the text that we read last week, right? You see at verse 39, they were seeking to stone him and then tried to chase him. He slipped their grasp and he went away again beyond Jordan to the place where his John the Baptist first baptized and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And what's the conclusion? Many were born again. People came to Jesus and were affirming the message of Christ as taught by John the Baptist. Though John the Baptist did no miracle, those who heard him preach could confidently say that Jesus lived and was the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world just as John the Baptist said he was and would be and do. John the Baptist was faithfully preaching Christ. He always lived to make sure Jesus would increase and he would decrease. It kind of reminds me of 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, when Paul reminds the Corinthian believers the first time he stepped into their presence. He said, I came to you preaching nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. But nothing better could be said of a pastor teacher or a teacher of God's word, my friends, right? 
I mean, I, I, I would hope at the end of my life, and as, as pastor teachers and teachers of God's word for you, disciplers, I would hope the same could be said of you at your home going. Right? John the Baptist is beheaded long off the scene when this testimony is spoken of him by the apostle John. He was true to Christ. He didn't add anything to him. It wasn't necessary. He didn't take anything away from him. It wasn't necessary. He wasn't religious at all. He just preached Christ as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And may we always be faithful. And may that always be an evidentiary thing. May that always be the reality here at Grace Church of Menor, that we preach him and him alone for the salvation of man's souls. Jesus is enough to save. He's enough to preserve. He's enough to be known and to know, to be glorified and to be enjoyed forever. Nothing more or less could be such a great compliment to say of any preacher today, here or anywhere. Preaching Christ alone, pointing souls to him alone, persuading those who know him to live and his person and power alone should be the final conclusion of any ministry, let alone any teacher or minister of God's holy word, including each of you as disciples. And with that as our guttural conviction as a church, what will be the fruit of that? And many believed on him there. Don't doubt for a moment, my dear friends. As we'll have more baptized in two weeks. Don't doubt for a moment. For a moment. I know there's some of you that are visiting. I'll get, we'll get to know each other more. I get a little passionate sometimes. Don't, don't be scared. I'm okay. Don't think for a moment that when you see new birth announcements coming through your email that that's not the good hand of God upon a people who seek to remain faithful to the person, message, and works of Jesus Christ. Exclusively. God has given us many people in this city as we faithfully live, preach, continue to know him, People will see the joy in your life. They'll see the difference in the way you live. And you'll be able to share with them the wonderful peace and joy and settledness that Christ has brought to your life. And you can make an appeal to them based on Christ and how he's changed you so that they may see him and not you so that he can increase and that we can decrease. Christ can remain our all in all all the time all the time preparing this message and pastors know this teachers of God's word know this sometimes God allows you in his providence pretty much every week <laughs> to study passages that you need more than your people do so I just want to let you know I was, I was incredibly encouraged by Jesus' final public opportunity to, to speak and debate share, relate his word to souls that knew him and souls that didn't. So I hope you're encouraged if you know him by understanding more about him and his attributes in this text. And, and if you don't know him, I would invite you to see Jesus only, see him only in the person at grace that you know. because that's what they would want you to see. That's who they would want you to see. And that's who they want you to know. And if you have any questions about our wonderful Jesus, and you want to sit down and talk with your friend who's telling you about Jesus first, that's fine. But if they want to sit down and talk with me too, I love to talk about Jesus. <laughs> okay? I'd love to share, share him with you too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. I pray, Lord, that for our unsettled hearts that we would be encouraged by the understanding of all that God has in eternity past decided omnipotently and omnisciently and mercifully 
graciously in an all-wise way to enact upon our souls. And we would go in that humble confidence forward and continuing to deal with our weaknesses, which are natural, and pursue his abundant strength. For those who may not know Jesus, I pray that thy spirit would do a continued work in their hearts to draw them to know him as the Lamb of God that came to die on a cross for their sin. I pray that everyone here that is yet to know Jesus personally, that they would understand their greatest need is not food, clothing, shelter, education, and security and safety, but their greatest need is truly forgiveness. That only Jesus can forgive. And they would look to him and know the peace that his forgiveness can offer in their souls. They would turn from their sin and place their full confidence and faith and believe in Jesus as the Son of God.